I begin this morning, let me say two things. Uh, first of all, um, uh, we want to ask you to uh, not rush out too fast at the end of the service. Um, uh, we want to do something today uh, uh, that um, uh, we, we, we feel like would be uh, meaningful to um, our friend Will Crabtree. What we're going to do, as you know, there's a thumbs up hashtag on Facebook or um, uh, wherever, uh, but uh, we want to take a picture of the congregation this morning at the close of the service with everybody's thumbs up, and we're going to send that out so Will can see his church family, um, and uh, um, uh, we may even sing happy birthday. It's his birthday this coming Tuesday, so um, just keep that in mind before you think to rush out at the end of the service. Uh, this morning. It may take a little bit of time from your Sunday school, but I think you'll understand. Um, uh, it'll be meaningful to uh, Will. Um, uh, <clears throat> we were up there, I was up there on uh, Friday, and uh, he is making um, uh, a tremendous amount of progress, and for that we give God glory and uh, praise. Also, um, if you've been uh, attending on Sunday nights our Daniel uh, series, um, we're tonight beginning chapter 7. The first six chapters of Daniel are more personal. They're telling stories about Daniel and, um, you know, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, Belshazzar. But tonight we begin the prophetic part of the book. And uh, I hope that you might be uh, interested in coming and uh, hearing those messages as we begin the prophecy uh, portion of uh, Daniel tonight in Daniel chapter 7. Well, if you haven't already, take your Bibles and open them to Ephesians chapter 4. This morning we're going to be looking um, at, um, uh, well, over the next uh, couple of messages, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 6. My good friend and seminary classmate, Steve Gaines, who is current president of the Southern Baptist Convention, pastors the um, Great Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, or right outside of Memphis. It used to be in Memphis. Now it's in what is called Cordova, Tennessee, which is a suburb of Memphis. Bellevue is one of the top 25 largest churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. Several years ago, when Dr. Adrian Rogers was still pastor, before <clears throat> Steve became pastor, the church built a totally new facility in Cordova. It is a massive structure. If you've ever seen uh, Bellevue, if you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about. It has a beautiful worship center and um, education space. The foyer alone is bigger than probably six or more of our sanctuaries. Um, it is a huge, massive facility. But what's interesting about Bellevue is, is that as you approach from the outside, there are seven columns on the front of the church, massive columns holding up the portico. And on each of those columns are engraved these statements, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Now, where did they get those concepts? 
from right here in Ephesians chapter 4, in verses 4 through 6. Look what Paul says here. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, if you look back at verse 1 of Ephesians 4, you find the word, therefore. That marks the transition from the positional to practical truth of Paul's letter. From the doctrinal section in chapters 1 through 3 to duty, to responsibility. Right behavior must always be based on right belief. And what we have found in uh, chapters 1 through 3, Paul is talking about the belief of the Christian. Um, how we come to know Christ and um, what is involved in our being birthed into God's family. Now Paul is beginning to talk about the duty of Christians, the responsibility. If you truly are a member of God's family, if you're a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says there ought to be a difference in the way you live your life. Here is the responsibility of the believer. Paul's point is if you are truly a believer, if you truly claim to be a Christian, you will act in a certain way. You will walk the talk, in other words. So in the first three chapters, Paul has set forth the believer's position with all of the blessings and the honors and the privileges of being a child of God. In the next three chapters, beginning in chapter 4, chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul gives the obligations and the requirements of being a child of God. Or you could say the first three chapters deal with the Christian's birth into God's family. The last three chapters deal with the Christian's behavior as a member of God's family. Friend, when we received Jesus as Savior, we became citizens of his kingdom and members of his family. Now, along with those blessings and privileges that are ours as members of God's family, we also received obligations. Um, we, you don't just come into God's family and then think you can live any way you want to. Um, uh, there are certain obligations and responsibilities that the Christian must live up to. The Lord expects us to act like the new persons we have become in Christ. So the practical section of the letter begins here in chapter 4. And Paul deals in verses 1 through 6 of this fourth chapter with the unity in the body of Christ. He faces the problem of potential disunity among the Ephesian believers. And he, Paul knows that gathered in the various house churches throughout, throughout Ephesus are people from different ethnic and social and religious backgrounds. There are people with different personalities and different priorities. And Paul knows that all of these people who have come together through faith in Christ, with all of their differences, they must find a way to work together in order to fulfill the church's calling 
and mission. Friend, we've already looked at verses 1 through 3. If you're a guest with us this morning as we have worked our way through Paul's letter of Ephesians, we've already looked at the first three verses where Paul exhorted the Ephesian believers to treat one another in a Christ-like way. Paul is saying that pulling together is the secret to the church's power. Now in verses 4, 5, and 6, Paul points out that in spite of all the things that um, are different about us, there are common core beliefs around which the church must be united. These are non-negotiables. These are things that we must agree on. These are things that unite us together. So here's what I want you to take away from the message this morning. Beneath all of our differences, there are common core beliefs around which the body of Christ unites. And that's what I want us to look at in uh, uh, the course of two different messages. These common core beliefs, which you could call the seven pillars of biblical Christianity. And there they are on the screen. One body, one spirit, one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. These are things that are non-negotiable. These are things that unite us together as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to look at the first three of these core beliefs. Because, you know, it would be easy just to, to read through these things and just pass over these things and just read them and, and just glance over them. But there is a lot of truth right here in these three verses. These are each separate doctrinal truths of the church that we need to be aware of and we need to be informed about. So we're going to look at each one of those um, uh, as closely as we can over the next two messages. So we're going to begin this morning. Paul says the first pillar of biblical Christianity is there is one body. The one body is the church. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 5, So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Now, what church is Paul talking about? Is it the Baptist church? Is it the Methodist church? Is it the Presbyterian church down the street? Is it Cornerstone, or is it Friendly Avenue, or Mercy Hill? Is it the church in Ukraine, or the church in India, or the church in Honduras, or the church in Spain? What church is Paul referring to? Well, you need to understand that in the New Testament, the word ecclesia, which is the Greek word for church, is found in both its singular and plural form. In the plural form, it refers to different local congregation of believers, such as Cornerstone um, and all the other churches in our association. That would be the plural form. We are all churches um, uh, <clears throat> together in the body of Christ. But in its singular form, when the word is used in its singular form, it refers to all true believers who make up the one body of Christ. And that's who Paul has in mind here when he, when he says we are one body in Christ, individually members one of another. So if you think about it, 
If you go back in biblical history, in the early days of the church, it was a very small body. Originally, it consisted of Adam and Eve in the garden. Um, uh, they were the first people. They were the first of God's people. And then it grew as others were added. There were Abel and Seth and Enoch and Methuselah and Noah. Abraham was later added as his spiritual family increased. There were people like Isaac and Joseph, the 12 fathers of Israel. There was King David. There was Isaiah. There was Jeremiah. There was Daniel and all the other prophets, as well as those who believed in God throughout the Old Testament era. The early Christians were members of this body. There was Mary Magdalene, there was Lydia, there was Peter, there was Paul, there was John. There were the saints of the Middle Ages, there were the Reformers, the early church fathers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, among uh, those. There were those who believe today are a part of this body. Listen, friend, if you are a member of God's family, if you are a, a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a part of this one body, the church. Now, people often criticize Baptists. Have you noticed that? If you've been a Baptist long enough, you know they love to criticize Baptists. <clears throat> and they often say things like, I believe, you know, you Baptists think that you're the only people going to heaven. Y'all are just narrow-minded. You, you think that you're the only ones that have uh, the truth and the answer and that the rest of us are going to hell. My reply to that is this. I'm more narrow-minded than most of those people think. I believe there are a bunch of Baptists who aren't going to heaven. I'm also very broad-minded. I believe that there are a lot of Presbyterians who are going to be in heaven. There are a lot of Methodists who are going to be in heaven. Um, I believe there are a lot of Catholics who are going to be in heaven when they die, for that matter. I also believe there are many Pentecostals who are going to heaven if they don't go past it. <clears throat> I also happen to believe that there are all kinds of believers who are going to heaven when they die. And they're not just going to be Baptist. Amen? Amen? Listen, all of those, regardless of their denomination, regardless of the local church that they attend, they are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are the one body. So, listen, salvation is not in a denomination and it is not in a local church. I was, I don't know why I do this. Those of you who are in the joy group can relate to this. I have, I have finally done it. <laughs> I have this habit now of picking up the paper and reading the obituaries. <laughs> I admit it, I do. I just, you know. Um, but this morning, I was reading <clears throat> an obituary, and it said this particular person was of the Baptist faith. And I went, no, no, there is no Baptist faith. There is the Christian faith, but there is no Baptist faith. Listen, it does not, well, it does matter as far as where you go to church and what 
particular denomination group you belong to as far as what you learn and as you grow and mature in your faith. But your denominational identification and your local church identification is not what's important as far as your being a child of God and a member of God's church. Um, friend, you can join a local church, and you should. When you join a local church, your name is written down on the church roll. But please listen to me. Don't ever assume because your name is on some church's roll that you are insured of going to heaven. Jesus said there are many religious people who think they're going to heaven. But they have never truly been born again. So when you stand before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? Don't say because I was a part of the Baptist faith. Don't say because I was a member of Cornerstone Baptist Church. Don't you dare say because my name was written on the roll of that particular church, wherever it may be written on. Friend, there is another list, another roll the Bible talks about. And it is the list the Bible says is written down in the Lamb's book of life. When you're born again, you become a part of the body of Christ, the church. You see, you can't join the body of Christ. You can join this church. You can join Cornerstone. But you can't join the church. You become a part of it when you become a Christian and your name appears in the Lamb's book of life. Those are the ones who are going to make it into heaven. And all of those make up the one body. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's important that you understand what Paul is talking about when he says, We can disagree on a lot of things. But one thing we can't disagree on, there is only one body. And that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not just Baptists who belong to it. It's not just the Presbyterians or the Episcopalians. It's people from all of those groups who sincerely, sincerely trust and understand that God loved them enough that he would send his son, the Lord Jesus, to die on a cross to save them from their sins. So that's the one thing, first thing I want you to see. Secondly, the second pillar of biblical Christianity is Paul says there's one spirit. Now let's keep looking. You say, well, why are we taking two messages for three verses? Now you know why. There's a lot of truth in these two words here. He says, secondly, there's one spirit. Now, the spirit he's talking about is the Holy Spirit. The Bible says there are many spirits. There are both evil spirits and there are angelic spirits. But there is only one Holy Spirit. Well, what does the Holy Spirit do? It is God's Spirit that causes a person to be born again. John writes in John, <clears throat> excuse me, in John chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. He says, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You see, all of us have different testimonies of how we came to know Christ. 
uh, we have different testimonies as to the circumstances surrounding our conversion to Christ. Some of us may have been saved in vacation Bible school as a child. Some may have been saved in college um, uh, at a, a BSU gathering. Some of us may have been saved at a Billy Graham crusade or at a church service at a during a revival meeting growing up in church. All of our circumstances will be different. But when Paul says there is only one spirit, he is undoubtedly asking us to think of the way the Holy Spirit works in those different circumstances surrounding our conversion. For instance, when we begin to talk about what the Holy Spirit did in our hearts to bring us to faith in Christ, our experiences are identical. The circumstances may be different, but the experience is identical. And here, look at these five things up on the screen. There is no difference in your conversion and my conversion in that these things had to take place if we are truly born-again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. What does the Holy Spirit do in every believer? First of all, He convicts us of sin. He makes us aware that we are sinners before God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the Bible says. The Holy Spirit convicts us of that. The Holy Spirit then leads us to confess our sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there must be confession. That's the Holy Spirit who causes us to do that. The Holy Spirit then draws us to believe in Christ and His death on the cross. Um, uh, Paul says in Romans 10 that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Then he places the new life of Christ within our hearts. And then finally he sanctifies us by producing his fruit within us. So when we begin to think along these lines, we say, isn't it marvelous that regardless of what background we come from, Regardless of the circumstances surrounding our conversion, the one Holy Spirit of God has united us in a common salvation experience. When all of our experiences of salvation were made possible by the one Holy Spirit of God working in the same way within every one of us, there are none of us who are more spiritual in that regard than anyone else. We are all equal when it comes to our salvation experience. And the Holy Spirit is the one who made that possible. That's the second pillar of biblical Christianity. We must believe in one body. We must believe in one spirit. Thirdly, I want you to understand, there is also one hope. One hope. Now, <clears throat> I believe that this one hope Paul refers to is the return of Jesus. He says there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. I believe this hope that Paul is referring to is the return of Jesus, the believer's resurrection, and the last judgment that will follow. If you look up hope in Webster's Dictionary, it will say something like desire with expectation. But the secular definition has the idea of maybe it will happen, maybe it won't. Or I wish it would happen, but I'm just not real sure. 
There's an idea of wishing that it would happen, not knowing for certain that it will come true. Have you ever stood in front of a wishing well, taken a penny out of your pocket, tossed it into the wishing well, and made a wish, and then thought to yourself, well, I hope it comes true? That's hope according to the world's understanding of hope. But friend, there is the biblical idea which is quite different. It's not talking about something in the future that may or may not happen. In the Bible, the word hope means a rock rib certainty. You can count on it. It is certain. It is something you can bank your entire future on. If you've been to a funeral service, you remember the portion of the service in which we speak of our sure and certain hope, meaning the resurrection of the dead. Sure and certain is the biblical understanding. As I was in the hospital this past week with Stacy DiGiacomo back in the emergency room where her mom had passed, and it was just Stacy and I standing there. And Stacy, as you can imagine, is distraught. We've uh, been praying, and uh, as we're standing there, Stacy says to me, she says, you know, I don't know why this happened. I don't understand it. The only thing I can only do is hold on to the hope that I'll see her again. Friend, that's the hope of the believer. That's the hope that we have that the lost person doesn't have. That's not something we hope will happen. That's not something we wish will happen. That's something we know will happen. And Paul says that's something we enjoy together as believers, this one hope. Titus 2, look at that verse. It, Paul speaks of waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Frank, can I just say to you this morning, Jesus is coming back, and on that we can be certain. One of the problems in America today is it seems we are wondering hopelessly and helplessly, and people are afraid about what's going to happen in the future. I've never seen it like it is today, where people seem to be so helpless and so hopeless. And listen, the sad thing is, I run into a lot of Christians who have as sad a face as the non-believer does. And I'm thinking, have you not read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4? Paul says, we have a hope. This is not the end. This is preparation for a greater future. I don't know everything that's going to happen. I don't know who's going to win the Masters Golf Tournament this afternoon. I can't predict that. I don't know who's going to win the NBA playoffs or the World Series this year. But I do know this. Jesus is coming back. On that, I can be certain. Friend, that's the next thing on God's prophetic calendar. And it could happen at any moment. And the Bible says there will be a seven-year period of tribulation. After the battle of Armageddon, there will be a thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. And on that, I put my trust and belief. For that reason, there is not a sense of hopelessness in my life. I will just tell you, 
Yes, I look, I, I get discouraged, I get frustrated just like the rest of you. I'm not trying to pretend that I don't. But at the end of the conversation, at the end of it all, I have to go back to this one core belief. And that is that we have a hope that the world doesn't have. And that is that Jesus is coming back. And if he doesn't come back before I die, then I know I'm going to see him in heaven where he is. And today, sadly, there are many things that divide us as Christians. If we focus too much on the present, we will have divisions because we overstress denominational distinctions and so forth. However, it is entirely different if we keep looking to the future and believe that Jesus is coming again one day. We are going to be with him. He has promised we have a home in heaven. In John 14, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'd go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That is our great hope that we share in common together as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as members of the one body, the church of Christ. Friend, if we look forward to these things, if we anticipate the day when we will stand alongside people from other denominations, from various races and cultures and nationalities, people from various social and economic and educational backgrounds, all together standing before the throne of God, singing and praising Him forever and ever and ever. If we could keep that picture in our mind, it would cause us not to be so divided over the things that really don't matter in this life. Does that kind of truth bring joy to your heart? Or does it create a little fear? Do you have that hope that this life is not all there is? That there is something far greater awaiting us in heaven? If so, then join with me and say, even so, Lord Jesus, let's pray.